everyone, this is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have John. Hi, John. Hi. How are you today? I'm doing good. Good. You know, that, how could you not do good when you're uh, living in Hawaii? Well, that's right, and we'll get to that because I, I need to ask you about that later. But <laughs> John, for those of us who um, maybe you don't know who you are, could you just give us a little snapshot of you? Well, I uh, started off uh, being Mr. Russian River Leather back in 1982 and went through the ranks of drummer, uh, IML. Uh, and then uh, I opened a, a jewelry store up and most people knew it. Jewelry by Ponce was uh, a large jewelry store for the gay community. And I did that for 35 years and then retired, but I still make jewelry. And that's pretty much it. Awesome. Glad to have you here. And I have to do a shout out to uh, Rod Wood because Rod is actually the, the person who said you need to have John in your podcast. So here we are. <laughs> well, thank you, Rod. So, John, I, we spoke like a little bit a few days ago before we got on to this recording. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your coming out story because it, it seems so interesting. And I think it's a story that lots of people would like to hear. Well, two days after graduating from high school, me and my best friend, Peter, uh, decided we were going to go to San Francisco and hitchhike. And we had $13 in our pockets, so we thought we had everything that we needed. <laughs> so we packed a duffel bag and headed out uh, hitchhiking and got stranded someplace. I'm assuming it was Backerville somewhere and couldn't get a ride. So luckily, there was a train going by very slowly north. And that was headed from L.A. up to uh, Oakland. And so we jumped on it. So we rode the train. And uh, <laughs> at some point, they stopped the train and started to look at the boxcars with a flashlight. And we could see this because it was a long train. And they were up ahead going to each box boxcar. So we jumped off and went to a liquor store across the street and got this guy to buy us a big bottle of Boone's Farm. You know, that's about rock bottom as far as the wine goes <laughs> and so we drank that and we're pretty drunk and the train started moving and so we or i thought he jumped back on from where i was i jumped on another box car because it was moving faster but he fell off and so i had the backpack i had the money i had everything and rode it all the way up to oakland where at six o'clock in the morning i was you know, tired, but I was there and he wasn't and I didn't know where he was. <laughs> so I figured, oh, well, I'm here. Uh, so I hitchhiked into the city. A guy picked me up hitchhiking and dropped me off on the corner of California and Polk. Now, for most people who are older, you will remember that the Pride Festival used to go down Polk Street and then end up at City Hall. Now it's Market Street where they they take all of Market Street. But back in those days, it was still relatively new. And I was standing there wondering what the hell I was going to do. And I was hungry. So I saw this restaurant and I went into the restaurant and ordered my food. And they said they'd call me when it was ready. And I sat down and I started noticing these ugly women with beards. <laughs> and, and I didn't realize that they were just doing camp drag for you know for the pride but i mean because i was 17 and dumb and new to all this 
And I just started freaking out a little bit. And then they called my name. Oh, John, John, uh, your breakfast is ready, big boy. And I was just like, okay, everybody's going to see me. Everybody knows who I am now. But I was nervous. So I went up, got the breakfast, ate it as fast as I could and ran up to the bathroom to change into uh, some clothes that were a little bit cleaner since I've been rolling around in a boxcar. How old are you at this point? 17. Okay, keep going. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I was changing in the bathroom and a couple of hands went underneath the uh, stall and I literally was freaking out. So I ran out of there as like fast as I could. Like they were trying could. to cruise you? Yes. Oh my yeah. God. And uh, so I got on the out on the street and this guy walked up to me and I'm so oblivious that he's trying to pick me up, but... You know, I finally said, I need a place to put this bag. And he says, hey, and he took me to the Greyhound bus terminal where they had lockers back in those days. For all you young people who don't know this, but there was lockers at airports. There was lockers at bus terminals and train stations before the bombings started. But anyway, um, so I checked it in with a quarter and, and then went back out on the street. And I started seeing the parade. And the only thing I truly remember about the parade was... Uh, this pickup truck going by and it was filled with uh, drag queens in the back all dressed like widows and they were all crying and on the back of the truck it said gay widows and I just thought that was hysterical this is pre-AIDS, this is pre-everything mm-hmm. so for me that was funny and I followed the parade down to City Hall where they had bands set up and everything and I met a man there named Blair who I said was an older man he was 26 but for a 17-year-old, that was a he's lot older. older. <laughs> right, he's older. Anyway, but I was exhausted, and he offered me a place to sleep. And I said, okay. So I went to his uh, his place where he lived, and he put me to bed and went back out to party, and I fell asleep. Well, he came back in later on that evening and seduced me, and that was the end of that. Um, I knew what where I belonged. And so... On my 18th birthday, uh, he told me he's coming down to get me, to bring me back up to be his lover. Meanwhile, I get home from there. He actually put me on a train, I mean, on a, a bus, so I wouldn't have to hitchhike and paid for it. And I was very grateful for that. And I got home, and there was my friend Peter. And he had a picture of this girl on TV. And I said, who's that? And he goes, her name is Shotzi. Uh, I met her hitchhiking and she took me to her, her double wide trailer where we had sex all the time while her husband watched TV. Oh my God. And I said, he didn't care. And he said, no, he didn't really care anything. So I was like, wow. Okay. So anyway, so my boyfriend came down to pick me up on my 18th birthday, which was the next month. And he walked in and saw the picture and said, Shotzi. And my friend Peter said, you know her? And he goes, yeah, I've known Shotzi for years. I knew her before she was a, a woman and was a man. And she makes oh, wow. uh, video films uh, of her having sex with young boys. Uh, and her husband is the video and, and through no people. Yeah. He, he turned white as a ghost because that was his first sexual encounter. And he didn't even know. Wow. Him. So I... I just rolled in laughter on that one, but that was my coming out story. Wait, was he filmed? I, you know, to be honest, 
I don't know. I, you know, it's on VHS I, somewhere anyway, so we will never I, see it. <laughs> right. You know, but it was a funny story. Oh so. my gosh, I I love how you're <clears throat> you're coming out. I was wondering where I was going. Oh, my coming out story starts with jumping on the back of a train. <laughs> yep. Wait, so did you have no inclination before that you were attracted to men? It was just like clicked for you in that moment or what? Well, we all knew, you know, mm-hmm. but it's it's easy if you don't understand what's going on to push it down. And mm-hmm. coming from a Latin family, you know, we don't want to embarrass our families. So yeah. Um, so I kind of hit it. But once once I actually had sex with a man, uh, you know, I wasn't going to have sex with anybody else uh, except men. Yeah. And or at least you, I had you had sex with that. a woman before. Yes, you I did. did. Okay. I had a girlfriend in high school and. I used to sit there and count to 50, and if she hadn't come by the time I counted to 50, I was done. <laughs> okay, so you were, I guess you realized the, the magic of it was different when you were with yes. a man. When I was with a woman, it was, I was a robot just trying to, you know, do it. And I wasn't really feeling anything, but I was mm-hmm. doing it just because I thought that that was what I was supposed to do. Right. But when it was with a man, there was passion and I, my heart would beat and everything would be, you know, I could tell that there was a connection that I never felt with a woman. It's crazy. I mean, I mean, I, I come from a Mexican background family. Me too. Well. You were both Mexican. Okay. So yeah. And the, the whole thing of like, from the, the very beginnings of your life, they're telling you like, Oh, you're going to carry on the family name. You're going to have, uh, you know, a big family with five children mm. and a wife and a job. And like that idea, I mean, I don't think they, they know our necessaries, their family meant to like shove it down our throats, but it's like instilled in us from childhood. Right. You know, I mean, I wanted to play with, you know, uh, uh, pencils and paper and draw and do all this. And my father wanted me to go outside and throw footballs. You know, yeah. it was, you know, I yeah. mean, I had a creative side to me that was more important than sports. Mm-hmm. And so. did when you when you um well was your career jewelry making? Well, no, it, it was a fluke. Uh, my family okay. has always been into jewelry. Okay, so um, I went to school uh, to get a degree in architecture, but when I graduated, there was no work because you're way too young to understand this. But the interest rates at that point. Uh, went up to 19% interest. And so there was no one hiring. There was nobody getting any kind of loans to build anything that they needed an architect. And so I was virtually, I had to support myself and I wasn't going to be able to do it being an architect at that time. I figured maybe later on I would. So I did join my family's jewelry team. And eventually I opened up my first gay booth at at a festival and it went really well and i did that for two years until i built up a clientele and then i opened the first openly gay jewelry store in laguna beach next to the boom boom room and was the boom boom room because there's an article here that you shared with me which i can also post up on the patreon for those who are interested in in taking a look at it but the the boom room room was that was that a a gay establishment yes it was a gay bar and restaurant during the daytime it was a restaurant 
and at nighttime uh, or like Sunday afternoons, it was a bar uh, because they had to have a liquor license. The only one they had was for a restaurant. So they had to keep a restaurant open, which was for me was great because they had the best chefs uh, and they used to make my breakfast every morning and it was cheap. But uh, it was a fun bar. I mean, if anybody back in the 70s to 80s would go down to Laguna, it was a must go to after the beach, you know, to go Mm -hmm. party. So uh, the the storefront next to it came available and I figured, okay, uh, let's open it there. And that's that's how I opened the jewelry store. And I was there for 30 years. Wow. I also read and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are the first person to like design a pride ring is yes, that yes uh, i did uh the first i designed the first pride ring and it was meant to be a wedding bands mm-hmm. so they were in gold and they had rubies emeralds sapphires uh you know uh, to make the colors of the rainbow amethysts and citrines so they were all natural gemstones and so they told me go ahead and make more of them and so i started making them for the for the pride festival and the next year i went back to the pride festival uh and somebody had copied me i mean down no way down to the t i mean it looked exactly like mine except silver with cz's and i was really upset about that but somebody said you know that's supposedly the highest uh, honor is to have somebody copy your work. That's well, true. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't happy about it. So I ended up having to start having them made in silver with CZs as well, so that I did a better job and uh, I knew that it was made better because mm-hmm. uh, these were really cheap, cheaply made, and people would damage them and bring them to my booth, and I'd have to inform them that those were counterfeits. Wow. Well, well, it's on paper. You are the first one. <laughs> well, I also designed. Paper. I also designed the first leather pride ring. For oh, really? a, yeah, for the winners uh, uh, at IML, and also uh, the first bear pride ring. Wow, and I mean, not to bring you back into business or anything, but if like one of us wanted to buy one of those <laughs> rings, are you still making them? Yes, you, if some if somebody asks me to make something, I am I'm happy to do it. Uh, I may be retired, but you know when I get an order, you know every couple of months I'll get a, a two or three orders. It gives me something to do other than yeah. you know lay here by the pool. You know it's yeah. it's it's terrible, but somebody has to do it <laughs> to lay by the pool. <laughs> so you just said you, <laughs> you 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 just recently moved from Palm Springs to Hawaii. 18 months ago, yes. That's right, because I was actually, I was trying to get get you on the podcast 18 months ago, and you said, no, I'm moving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so finally, here we are. <laughs> yeah, and it was the best move I ever made. I, I didn't know when I moved here that I moved into the second highest uh, area of gays living. I never knew that because it, it's very vegetational, you know, mm-hmm. all around me. And I live on two acres, so you don't see other houses. And most of the houses are the same as like mine here uh, in the Lani Estates. And they live on up to like one acre up to 70 acres. Wow. So at first I thought I was isolated. And then you started noticing a few gay people. 
Mm-hmm. And and then they inform me about barbecues to go to and gay days at the Black Sands Beach. And before you know it, I found out there was a whole herd of people. Now, we don't have a gay bar here, but we have lots of social events. Yeah. Yeah. I love Hawaii. Can I ask you, is there a, are there like naked beaches on your island? Yeah, I have the Black Sand Beach, which is clothing optional, which is just okay. about four miles away from me. So it's okay. it's close by. Okay, I just so I when I went, I love naked beaches. I think that's the way the beach should be experienced is naked, like not even in a sexual way, just as like a freedom way. And like I forget what beach it was, but it was on um, Maui, whatever like the big naked beaches over there. Um, and I've only been to Maui once, so I I'm, I'm not an expert on on that island as of yet. It was really nice. Um, but what was really exciting was that you can just like kind of walk and there's like this little forest, I guess you can call it, that goes off to like the edge of a cliff. And it's pretty big and it's kind of cruisy. <laughs> well, I'll take your word for that because uh, I have not been there. So I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't get cruisy over there at the Black Sands. Well, it does to some degree, but... <clears throat> Even though it is, uh, they have gay day, it's still 80% straight. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's mixed. So, I mean, and the only way to get down to these this beach is uh, climbing down rocks. So there's not really any place that in that area that you can do cruising in bushes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this, this beach was really definitely had areas of seclusion. Someone was telling me that there was like, special areas where there's like a cave that people go in and i was looking for that cave i couldn't well, find it <laughs> there are there are caves at the rainbow the rainbow waterfall okay uh, at the big island yeah but it's i mean it's so dark in there i mean you wouldn't find another person anyway yeah <laughs> i went down there and i had to use my phone to find my way out <laughs> so i love it all right. Well, we know your sort of your your background story on, on coming out. What about leather? When did you discover leather as part of your life? Well, living in San Francisco, you know, um, from the time of eighteen uh, up to probably twenty one. You know, I mean, you grew up on you know in Folsom Street. You grew up with you know Castro, and you learn, you know, and. I wasn't truly heavily into leather at that point. I was still learning about myself, even at that point. But I went up to Russian River uh, and bought a house. And it was just a small little 800 square foot house right next to the Bohemian Grove, which was a very famous place for politicians to go to. And my friends were really worried about me because uh, my lover at the time had gotten killed uh, on a car crash and I was oh very God. depressed and so they for- forged my name on the Russian River leather contest mm. to get me out of the house and I won that and and you started meeting more quality people in leather at that point and then I went to the drummer contest and won that so you learn and it's a slow process but you know everybody has to learn how to get to where they feel comfortable mm-hmm. and then after iml i was like wide open you know basic whore 
So. <laughs> Basic core, yeah. <laughs> did, so did you have zero inclination to like leather at all until your friends just kind of pushed you into this Russian river competition? Yeah, I can honestly say, you know, it, I mean, really? if you're not exposed to it, you know, in in the way that I was, I mean, I just went to a bar, a leather bar, and, you know, would have a drink there. But uh, when you start really getting into clubs and things like that, where you understand it a lot more, I used to do the Satyrs motorcycle run, and I used to, you know, do all of these crazy things. But it's a learning process, and I was still young, you know? Mm. So, I mean, you figured if I I was I was a runner up of uh, forty forty one or forty two years ago, and IML was still in its infancy as well. Mm-hmm. So it was it was fun. Now, when the winner wins at IML, they they have a big party at uh, you know this club. You know, I forgot what's, what the name of the club is right offhand, but. When we won, we were taken to a bathhouse. That's how much difference it was. <laughs> I love so. that. We're actually, we're losing a lot of our bathhouses here in Los Angeles, but that's another discussion. But let's talk a little bit about that experience. Your first time running for, for a Russian river. I mean, was the... It was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the first one. Okay. It was ridiculous. Like, what they do you had... mean? I have pictures of me bobbing for apples as part of the competition. I had uh, pictures of, of wrestling uh, other contestants as part of the contest. I mean, it was, it was. That sounds awesome. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, I mean, it was for me, I was like, okay, I got to get all covered in mud and, you know, wrestling somebody, you know, to show that I'm a leather man. And I didn't really quite understand that, but, uh, I enjoyed the uh, of winning and how people treated me after that. I mean, that was interesting. And then I had a direction to go to, which was drummer. So, I mean, it, did it, that like feed oh, into that competition? Oh, yeah. It all, all of it did. You know, it okay. all is a piece of the puzzle that makes somebody who they are, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, once I went to IML, it, you know, it was that was mind boggling. You know, there was like, 50 contestants and and thousands of people would come to the event you know so you really got a taste of a large leather community instead of a neighborhood bar yeah absolutely so that was sort of like a solidifying moment for you in the iml situation yes experience okay and i guess it stuck because here you are (laughs) yeah i i mean i i was very honored two years ago to be a judge at IML. Mm-hmm. It had been a lifetime dream for me to be able to judge. And so I judged lots of leather contests in Palm Springs and other areas, but never IML. So that to me was, I was really honored to be able to do that. And it ended up that we picked the first transgender Mr. IML. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You were part of history there. Yeah, to some degree, yes. You know, uh, And, you know, a lot of people said, bad things about him i'm not gonna bring his name up but everybody knows who i'm talking about Mm -hmm. but he's a sweetheart i mean absolutely the most charming person and he told me a story that i won't repeat too too much but he was basically told that he was not worthy of being at iml because he was transgender Hmm. and i would never even have known that he was transgender you know so 
I went by his, I judged him strictly by what he was capable of doing, his verbal attributes, as well as what his plans were for the leather community. And he had a solid base that I really felt comfortable with. And it was easygoing talking to him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as someone who has like now ran for two titles, three titles, and won two of them, what do you look for in someone? I mean, because you by yourself was really introduced by to the leather community by running for a title. And I often hear a lot of times that like people kind of wince at that. And, but it seems like it was it's been happening for a long time. Well, it wasn't the best contest. It was a small contest in Russian <laughs> River. So But I mean, is there anything know. wrong with just kind of like running and introducing yourself to the community that way? Or is that something that you would kind of advise against? Everybody's unique and everybody is different. Uh my friends at the time were very concerned about me, and that was a way to get me out of my shell. Yeah. So you know, it's it's different for me. I was not, it wasn't something that I would have gone after, you know, but I was pushed into it. And I'm actually, now that it, it happened, I was very happy that it happened because it did do what they had wanted it to happen. I was out there and all of a sudden then I was traveling. I was doing other contests. I was, you know, so it was what they wanted to get me out of the house, yeah, I was and, only tw- I was only twenty two, you know. I was young. Yeah, and it really changed the direction of your life. I mean, like who you are today. Oh yes, definitely is greatly influenced by those experiences. You know, the one thing that I can tell you about being part of the leather community is the ver- the difference in all the different kinds of people. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first joined, you didn't see much uh, transsexuals or drag queens or. Uh, puppies or you know uh, any of that yeah. it was strictly a leatherman thing and as it becomes more integrated with other types of cultures into it it's becoming i think it's finding interesting to go to a contest and actually see the variety of different types of people that were never there when i first ran uh, why do you think that is well i think the internet has a lot to do with it mm-hmm. you know i mean People are going to be themselves no matter what. But And I'm sure the first ones who came into the contest or the vending areas or coming to the contest were made fun of, but eventually they became part of it. You know, I mean, whoever thought about men dressing up as puppies, mm-hmm. puppy play? I mean, I would never have thought about that. But And I don't understand it for myself, but I don't ever judge anybody above that. And I think that's a major part of becoming a Leatherman is that you learn not to judge other people by their appearances. You judge them by their heart. Oh, my gosh. Don't make me cry, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, you know, but it also uh, encourages you to not judge other people that are not in the leather community. I'm not just talking about gay people. I'm talking about in general. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's, it's sad that, you know, a lot of people, all they're doing is spewing hate all the time about things that they don't understand. So then it's something wrong for them. But, you know, the more that you get to know about a person, the more you realize that you are not that much different than other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and it usually is the the unknown that I think sparks a reaction from people, not a res- 
not necessarily a response because I feel like a response takes thought, but a reaction. And it's usually based out of fear of that element of the unknown kind of thing. Well, unfortunately, most people use hate as a way to gain power. Mm-hmm. And who's the easiest person to attack is the most vulnerable. Yeah. And the other, the person that's the other. Right. And so I, as I'm a large man, I mean, I'm 6'3, 260 pounds, you know, and at that time, I mean, my life, I was pretty much a bodybuilder all my life. Most people knew this. Uh, I never would allow anybody to mistreat somebody else. If I was there, mm-hmm. I always stood up and said something. You want to talk below to somebody? Talk to me that way and see what happens. Yeah. And most people are cowards and they would back down. And I wouldn't care if it was two or three other people doing it. You know, they would think twice looking at me of what I might do to them. Yeah. So luckily, being that big, most people never took me up on the offer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a I'm not really a fighter, you know, per se, but I just feel that people should not be mistreated in any yeah. way, shape, or form. Especially when you have experience like being that person on the other side of it as well. When you were um running for Russian River, like was this nineteen eighty two? Was were you one of like the fewer Latinos running for the title or was it kind of more diverse culturally that way already? No, I was pretty much the only one. Um, and the, there's an interesting story about that, too. When I went to IML, Marcus, I know a lot of people know who Marcus is. He's also Mexican, was the MC. OK. And, and I'm standing up there with, you know, 20 of the top out of the 50, you know, uh, and they're going to be calling the names for the top 10. And he walked past me and winked his eye and and just kind of did a, you're not going to have to worry about this. Don't worry about it. And he made the, all the calls, the number nine contestant to step on down. And then I was the, he made sure I was the last one that was called so that that's the memory that most people would see was the last person, you know, And so I was really, I always loved Marcus. Marcus was really cruel to a lot of people in the newspaper. If he thought that you were an ass, he made sure that everybody knew on his, on his newspaper. He was was the OG uh, Facebook blaster where he blessed people. (laughs) And, and never in all of the years uh, that I knew him until his death, did he ever say anything negative about me? Mm -hmm. It was always... You know, are you going to go see John Ponce uh, at at IML? He's got something really nice that's new to look at. You know, it was it was wonderful to me. And I can't I can't say any more kinder things about him. Just don't get on his bad side. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a a little bit out of order and I'll I'll have to edit this in a little bit. But um, I was curious about your current relationship right now and I, I wanted to ask you if you were you know if you're monogamous or you're open or poly or what's your situation i am monogamous um uh, you know at, at this stage in my life i you know you learned that you don't have a lot of time left so i'm not going to be single when i do <laughs> mm-hmm. so i happen i've had a lot of great relationships in my life and a lot that were like you know not good. Um, you always try to heal people and sometimes you just can't. But 
I met Todd uh, and I was in a really bad spot at the time. You know, I was dealing with the aftermath of a stroke as well as having prostate cancer. And, and it was a rough time for me. And I met Todd and he was the most gracious man I've ever met in my life. At six foot seven, he you know towered over me. I'm six foot three, and I never had to look up to somebody. He wasn't into leather; made it very perfectly clear to me about that. But he had so many other qualities that were so amazing. I mean, every morning, the first thing he says to me is, "I love you." This morning, I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? And you know, when I broke my back, he's been there with me the whole time to, he takes care of anything that needed to be done so i didn't have to worry about it and that's not somebody that you run across very often yeah so it's been now um 12 years since we we've known each other and we've been married uh in may it'll be six years congratulations thank you i'm curious to know are where all your like previous relationships monogamous as well no no, okay. No. So this is like and your first monogamous relationship with someone? Well, I mean, let's just put it this way. Some of the other relationships started out monogamous. Got and it. <laughs> they didn't end that way. And, okay. and and as it got really bad, then you were out looking for other things. And I was, yeah. you know, I figured I had all the time in the world at that point. You know, when I was your age, I mean, mm -hmm. hell, you know, I could go through 20 men a year and you know, have many relationships. And I was fine with all that. And then three ways were okay, but there always was somebody who got left out, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was usually sought after more than my partner was in a three-way. And I felt sorry for them. And I just didn't want to put ever put Todd in that position where he had to feel like he was second fiddle. Yeah. And it has worked out for us to be perfect. You know, I can go... I can go anywhere by myself. Like I just got back from a, a two and a half week trip, you know, and I saw lots of old boyfriends and things on my, on my journeys. But, you know, I, you know, yes, you get these urges sometimes that you would like to have sex with somebody, but I think about the aftermath of how I would feel and I wouldn't be able to hide it from my demeanor with him, mm -hmm. you know? And I didn't want to have to lie to him. I've never lied to him. I've never said anything that was not truthful. And I want to keep it that way. And it has grown. I mean, I I don't worry about him. He doesn't worry about me. It's just a common knowledge that we're here for the end. Together. Yeah. And you have a trust with each other that... I don't want to break. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, you know, not every scene has to be a pornography with the random guy you met down the street either. Like, <laughs> God knows, I've got enough of those in my uh, videos collection of me that, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> memories. Yeah. But I so don't. You, you also used to be a model. Is that accurate? Yeah, I got, uh, I got off the train in Milan when I was 21. And it's a sad story on why I left, but... There was a, a millionaire who lived in San Francisco uh, who really liked me a lot and wanted me to be his. But I had my lover at the time. And he happened to get sick in 1978. And it turns out he was number 42 ever recorded for 
coming down with AIDS. Oh, no. It wasn't even out there yet. I mean, it was so new. And before I knew it, the CDC had dropped down in front of us uh, at the hospital and just was bombarding me with questions and asking me to do blood samples and everything. And I was willing to do anything that I could do if it was going to save his his life. Um, It didn't, you know, and... And he was sick in the hospital for about a week. And this millionaire took it upon himself to have his limousines or uh, any his chauffeurs always picking me up from work, taking me to dinner with him and trying to make me feel like he was going to be there when I was done, when he passed away. Uh, you don't get over something like that as easy as that. Yeah. And so I told him I wasn't ready for a relationship after he passed away. So he gave me a free trip to Europe as a way to get over it. I didn't realize he had, you know, his own ideas that, you know, he was going to meet me in Sicily and we were going to be together after that. But I ended up getting on the train, uh, heading to Milan, got off. And this guy thought I was one of the models that he was looking for. Yeah, And so... Uh, Wilt Batchford was putting on a large fashion show. Uh, anybody who's older knows Wilt Batchford was one of the leading men's clothing stores in, there was one in San Francisco. And so I got thrusted doing uh, modeling on my first day at uh, landing in Milan. And it just progressed from there. And I, I lived there for two and a half years. Eventually, I became too large for clothes because I was into the gym more than anything. You were body like a bodybuilding. Yes. And so they couldn't fit me in anything. So I was released from my contract and I came home. And that's when I bought the house in Russian River. And that Mm -hmm. started all that. So that was that, you know, but I mean, it wasn't uh, all glamour. Everyone always thinks modeling is glamorous. It's not. Most of the time you are doing or like just clothing chains, you know, like Sears and things like that. They have their low grade brands, you know, for customers there. And you have to just sit there and do all these stupid little runway shows, you know. So I learned very quickly that it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. Yeah. Any Anyway, so bodybuilding was more important to me at the time. And that's where it led me. It's kind of funny, not like funny, haha, but like funny, ironic that, I don't know. It just seems like a TV show episode where by these, you know, unfortunate events, you're kind of thrust into and then you get off of like what a train or something. And they're like, oh, you're one of the models. Like, what did you, you just walked in there like you knew what you were doing or what? Oh, no, no, no. Like, that, that, I got on the I landed in the train probably about 10. And when the guy t- said that to me, I thought he was joking. And he pointed to the van. It was a little like beat up van. But in Europe, they're much smaller. Yeah. Everything is smaller. And there was about six really hot looking men in there. And I said, I'm sitting here with a duffel bag, torn jeans and a tank top. And uh, there's a mysterious van with hot men in it. Why am I not going to go there? (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I said, well, okay, let's do this. And so I remember the first time I walked out on stage for the fashion show, they could not fit me properly i mean i'm six three the average model is six or six one so Mm -hmm. they had to take the shoes off of me to fit into the pants they couldn't fit me into the shirt 
that they had. So they told me to go shirtless and they put on a $5,000 white, um, uh, it's it's kind of like a I can't remember the name of, of the fabric right now, but it's uh it's expensive. I mean, really expensive, yeah. like a cashmere or something, right? And silk lined and everything, you know. And they taught me to walk down the runway, walk back, and when I got to the end of the runway, to open one side of the coat and then follow through to the other side and then walk off. Well, what they didn't tell me is that I was going to be blinded by flashbulbs because I was the only model that was there that had a washboard stomach. And most people who've seen all my pictures know that I've had a washboard stomach my whole life. Yeah. Uh, and so they did, the cameras just went crazy. And that's when Wilk Bashford said that he wanted to sign me onto a contract. Wow. And, and that led to other, other, you know, shows to do, but mostly it's just a repetitive uh, with Sears and Walt Woolworths and things like that. Yeah. It, w- it wasn't like Janice Dickinson, Tyra Banks, all the time <laughs> no and even they yeah. even they don't do that all the time i mean they do yeah. commercials i mean you know for magazines and things like that too at the time where you know there was just a lot of photo shooting you know yeah it's a job mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a whole profession that's interesting so i, I kind of want to go back to your i don't want to call him your ex-lover your the 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 man who was kind of wanted you to be his boy and was one of the first patients of of the um hiv aids epidemic uh gregory sewell was his name and he was number 42 when he died and i went to europe by the time i got back there still wasn't any testing there was nothing and i was having ptsd uh trying to sleep at night because i just kept worrying that when is it my turn because by that time by the time i got back from europe it was just chaos did they even have a name for it yet at that point uh they did it, it changed names rather quickly from number i mean they didn't have a name for it when gregory came down sick but by the time i got back it was called the gay the gay plague and then it was AIDS after that Mm -hmm. and that's when ACT UP came about and I was I joined ACT UP and we used to uh, protest heavily in San Francisco you know because nobody was doing anything and it it was a terrifying time your friends would be fine one day and the next day they're they're sick so you laid there in bed always wondering when is it my turn it was a hard time for me to to live you know but uh when the test did come out, and I tested positive in 1984 or 85, something like that, I was really paranoid about how far back that went. And so, so were, I, you you were curious of like, oh, when when was I actually die or you know when when did it like enter my body kind of thing, and how long have I been living with it? Right, uh, because by then they were talking about that you know people can live with it without noticing it uh, for years and years. And some people developed it faster and some people didn't, but I wanted to know what, how far back it was. So I contacted the CDC and they refused to give me my blood work back. So I petitioned the courts to have it and I got my blood work back and it turned out that I was positive in 1978. And when did you find out? Uh, In 85. How did you live with it for that many years without knowing? Well, there was no test, so nobody knew. I mean, I mean, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but I. If there was no, there was no test. Isn't it hard to live with it for that long without knowing? That's pretty rare, right? It's very rare. 
I'm I'm very blessed, and I wow. I will never I will never say it that I wasn't because I never came down with uh, the symptoms ever, and and I I was the guinea pig for uh, AZT trials. Ended up in the hospital twice because of they didn't know what yeah. the do- dosage was, and that was a hard time. And they didn't understand it that you know AIDS virus would mutate. You know, so yes, it, it would help you in the beginning, but then it would mutate around it. And that's why the cocktail was developed finally after years and years. But during that time, it was, you know, it was very terrifying, you know, because I lost probably 200 different people that I knew. And you would see it every day. They would print it at the, I mean, once a week in the BAR, uh, Bay Area Reporter magazine. And they would just have pages and pages of people that you knew. And it was, it was terrifying. And, so you got a small symptom. I mean, uh, example of this with uh, COVID. Yeah. And and you were pro- most people, if they were smart, were terrified about being in large groups of people or, you know, getting yourself uh, infected. But I mean, that was how I lived for, you know, uh, seven years. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't easy. And when when uh, COVID came back, I, I went had to go back. Uh, and I went on to antidepressants for a short time because my PTSD from the AIDS epidemic came back to haunt me at night. Wow! And uh, once I once I got the first COVID shot, I started feeling better, and I weeded myself back off of uh, these uh, uh, mood elevators that I call them. Um, and so I've had three booster shots by now, and so I I <laughs> do my best to take care of myself, but. Uh, it was a hard time. I don't have the PTSD right now because of that. But it's... I mean, I can imagine, especially with the in the beginning, it being unknown and people dying left and right from COVID in the beginning throws you back into the trauma of like, we don't know anything about this right. virus and, and how to treat it or what it is and where it's come from. And, um, and I can imagine just, you know, back in 82 or whatever, like reading those newspapers and wondering when you're next right the test didn't come out i think uh, i don't have the exact date but i think it was somewhere at 84 or 85 when the testing was first coming out yeah so um i've lived through a lot of traumatic periods you know from i had a stroke you know which i got over um you know i've had tumors in my prostate cut out i mean i've gone through hard times you know where a lot of people always say john you had the best life you anybody i've ever known but you know we don't discuss the hard times as much on like uh facebook and things like that because who wants to have somebody feel pity for you for things that you've done or gone through yeah you know yeah so put on a happy face and keep on plugging yeah i mean so where did you where did you go from there at what point do you feel like you kind of got an handle on things emotionally enough to kind of move forward from the AIDS. Yeah. I mean, with, uh, well, once the cocktail came out, my T cells went up and the virus load went down to undetectable. And that's been the case now for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time that I've tested negative, but you know, I don't take it for granted. Yeah. So, and I never thought in my life that I would live to be 67 and still going strong. But I think that if you really care about life, and I do, uh, you 
you don't do things that are going to shorten your life. So I'm mm -hmm. trying my best to make my life the longest and the best possible. I want to ask you a little bit about ACT UP and your involvement with that. Uh, first off, for those who don't know what ACT UP is, could you just give us a little spiel of, of that organization? Well, ACT UP was developed, uh, I mean, it came to be because people were frustrated with the Reagan administration not doing anything. So large demonstrations were, you know, were being done sort of like they're doing now for like when Sandy Hook Elementary School was, you know, the kids were murdered, they put crosses and they they did their best to make sure that people saw how many people died. And they did the same thing at, with ACT UP and all the people that had died people would carry photographs of the dead ones, you know, uh, and then we would all just lay down at city hall and, and act dead, you know, to mm -hmm. make a point. And I don't know how much it did. Uh, I think the scientists probably were much more in it than the Reagan administration. You know, I think the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. companies knew that there was a large potential of, uh, money that could be made off of this disease but they did you know they did come around and i never will ever forget reagan for not doing more i mean it was never even mentioned they would never mention the word gay or aids in any conversations at all so no most people were naive about what it was doing to the gay community until it started spreading into the the white population you know of the rich you know, mm -hmm. and movie and movie stars like Rock Hudson, you know, got getting it. I mean, those those things were the catalyst for progression of scientific breakthroughs on that. And I always wondered why the AIDS virus hasn't been able to be taken care of like the uh, COVID. And there's, I always used to say, well, why can't they devise a, you know. A, a vaccine that will work on the AIDS virus. Well, the AIDS virus attaches to your your cells and they take it over. And to only get rid of the AIDS virus, you have to kill your own cells. Mm -hmm. And if it's if it's all in your whole body, then you know that's not a working situation that you can live with. Right. So I realize that it's much different uh, for the AIDS virus than it was for the COVID virus, and that was a learning experience for me. Yeah, yeah, I've heard. Uh... I mean, this is all anecdotal, but I've heard of like one or two people ever being like officially, you know, quote unquote, cured um, from it. But from what I understand, they had to go through like a whole oil change, like a bone marrow transplant and their whole blood was changed out. And because of a, it was like a happenstance kind of thing where they had to have a surgery for a different cancer or something like that. And then they end up testing negative all of a sudden. I don't know how true any of it all is, but I, I've heard a couple stories of that. It's like one or two people, you yeah. know, I mean, it's not enough that it's, you know, I'm sure that uh, they were dissected, you know, as much as they could get as yeah. much uh, DNA from them so they could work with them to figure out why they are exceptions to the rule. Yeah. But for the most of us, you know, is we don't have that option.